0: Good evening, and it's good to see you, if only from a distance. Hey, before we get into our tough question for tonight, I just want to say once again how much I miss seeing you. We're about a month into this quarantine. It's been a very, very strange month. I doubt any of us have ever had a month like this in our lives or ever thought we would. But I just want to remind you. This is an opportunity for us, an opportunity for us to be the church. Next Monday and next Thursday, the 20th and uh, the 23rd, I believe, we're going to be gathering uh, care packages for medical professionals. And we've sent out an email to our entire church body describing what needs to be in those baskets. As we said in the letter, if you are going to the grocery store anyway, add some of these things to your list, make a little basket, bring it by the church between 10 and four on Monday or Thursday of next week. This is something, this is our way of of helping those who are on the front lines of this crisis. Remember, check up on other people. Whether you can get out or not, you can, you can contact uh, people in your life group, people who you've worked with, people in your family, uh, people you barely know, your next door neighbors, anyone. Check up on people and it's beautiful weather right now. Get out and go for a walk. This this may be the last, I hate to say this, maybe the last cool weather we have until next fall. So enjoy it. There, there are things we can be doing to keep ourselves sane during this time. And of course, continuing to pray for our leaders as they make those difficult decisions about when and how, uh, and at what point to get things back to somewhat normal again. Well, we're going to start our our tough questions tonight. And this one is a a really tough one and and a real hot button issue. And it's, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I'm taking this as as all these questions I take very seriously, but this one, I know I, I need to handle carefully. This is a personal issue for a lot of us. There are people I'm sure who are watching this right now who would say, yeah, Jeff, I'm gay. And I really want to know what the bible says about this and what you think about this there are others who would say well i have people i love a good friend a family member who is gay and i i want to know what what does the bible say how should i treat them what should be my response and, and there are others who would say that it's not personal to me in that sense but more I, i'm wanting to understand how our culture could have changed so much on this issue over the past 10 years here's an issue that society had a, a certain consensus about virtually for the entire history of humanity and now in the last 10 years everything's gone upside down so how should we feel about that and i just want you to know that if you fit into one of those categories you matter you matter to god and you matter to me and, and so that makes me that makes me especially eager to be as compassionate and as clear, and most importantly, as biblical as possible. So as always, if I say something you disagree with or something you need more clarity on, feel free to email me. I'm happy to have the opportunity to interact with you. But let me just start by saying the short answer or the short version of this. The question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? The Bible says this. The Bible says that God created sex for human beings as a gift to humanity. And a gift that has two purposes number one it's it's how we procreate, how we reproduce the human race. you know the very first command in scripture is Be fruitful and multiply and and secondly it's as a source of pleasure for a man and a woman within marriage that that pleasure is something that brings a man and a woman together that binds them together it 's something they share with no one else in god 's plan that's that's something that in in a mysterious way even Uh, prefigures or, or shows us the bond between God and us through Jesus Christ. And so it is a beautiful thing, but it's a very exclusive thing. Any use of sex outside of God's original intent and design is something that's outside of his will, that is damaging to us, that is what the Bible calls sin. Therefore, any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. Now, I'm betting everybody listening to me knows that that's what the Bible says. So why am I still talking? Well, in spite of the fact that that knowledge is pretty well known, there are still a lot of myths about what the Bible says about homosexuality, and that, that's what I want to talk about tonight. Five, five myths that we see, some from people inside the church, some from people outside, some from people who are sort of on what they would call the more progressive side of this argument, and some who would be on what they'd call the more traditional side. There are myths that people believe that it's not enough just to know the truth, It it, it matters how we treat people. It matters how we behave. And so that's where these myths come into play. And I wanna talk about them one by one. So five myths. Number one, first myth, God hates me for being gay. And you don't have to listen to gay people for long or be around uh, someone you know who is homosexual for long to know that this is something that is commonly believed. I I could never be a Christian. Your God hates me because of my orientation. And and can I just say, without question, unequivocally, this is our fault. This is our fault as Christians. We are responsible for this. And I'll, I'll talk about that more later, but just understand if we were being the body of Christ like we were supposed to be, if we were representing Jesus like we should, this myth wouldn't exist. Let me just read for you 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And you might want to look this one up and read it along with me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. "...neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God." Now keep in mind What I just read is part of a letter, a letter that was actually written from Paul the Apostle to a group of people he knew. And what he's saying to them is, I knew you guys before you became Christians. I knew the kinds of lives you lived. I know that some of you used to be ruled by an addiction to alcohol. I know that some of you used to be ruled by a love of money. I know that some of you used to be ruled by your attraction to the opposite sex. You were sexually immoral. Some of you were ruled by your attraction to people of your own gender. But that's not who you are anymore. Christ has come into you. He has justified you. In other words, Your sin against Him no longer separates you from God. He has sanctified you. In other words, you're no longer ruled by those sins. Those things don't define you anymore. Now you belong to Him. Now you are living a new life. See, I I want you to notice in that passage, and again, look it up and read it for yourself. He doesn't condemn anybody for their desires. He doesn't condemn the alcoholic for having a taste for wine. He doesn't condemn the, uh, the greedy person for liking nice things. In a similar way, he doesn't, he doesn't condemn the homosexual person for their orientation. He doesn't say, you are outside the will of God because you have a sexual desire for people of your own gender. Instead, what he does is he says, far from hating you, Jesus loved you enough to die for you. Jesus loved you enough to offer you a new life. Uh, I have friends who could offer that testimony, who could say, yeah, I, I am attracted to people of my own gender. And yet, at some point in my life, I came to understand that what's more important than me fulfilling my own desires is to give my life to the one who loves me that much, enough to die for me. And so I'm choosing to follow him. I'm choosing to go with him. I belong to him. My primary identity is as a child of God. Now, I have heard stories and read testimonies of Christians who say, yes, I used to be involved in the gay lifestyle, but God has changed me and now I have different desires and now I'm happily married to someone of the opposite gender. I can tell you that hasn't happened to any of my friends yet. Their testimony would be, I still have the same desires I had before. I'm just choosing Jesus over my sexual desires and so I'm living a life of celibacy. And to some people that sounds awful, but the truth is, what they're doing is they're following in the path of Jesus, the path of Paul, the path of Mary of Bethany. For for most of the history of the church, we've understood that uh, sexual expression isn't something that is key to our own personal joy. That's that's just one aspect of humanity, that uh, joy is found in God. And these people are living out that joy. I will say these are some of the most courageous people I know because they get no support from other people who have their same orientation, who tell them, what are you doing? You should just follow your desires. And on the other hand, they don't get the support from their church because most of them don't feel like they can be honest about their struggle. So these are some courageous people. So back to that myth, God doesn't hate you no matter what your orientation is, no matter what your desires are. God loves you. God loves you enough to die for you. Myth number two, Some teachings of the Bible are clearly out of date, and this is one. See, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who were raised in church, people who are still active in church, who would say, hey, God loves me. And that means he doesn't want to deny me happiness. And he wouldn't deny me the opportunity to be with someone I love, especially when that person loves me back. And, and so uh, if when I read the Bible and I see these commands about homosexuality, that, that just means, well, you know, it's an old book. And some of those things, they got a little wrong. Maybe maybe Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe Moses, he was just, he was a guy who lived thousands of years ago. And so we know a little better than they do. Well, the, the problem with with that, that myth, that idea, that way of understanding truth is you're putting yourself in the position of saying, I know what's true in scripture and what's not. I know, i you know, God wrote this book. Yes, God inspired this book. I believe that. But I am now able, because I live in, an adva- in a time of, uh, of advancement and a time of enlightenment, I am able to see what is true and what is not in the Bible. And the problem with that is it's because of this book, the Bible, that I know the story of Jesus. It's because of this book I know that God loved us enough to become a human being, a human being who came to earth and who took the side of the downtrodden, who lifted up the fallen, who was courageous against oppression, the one who healed the blind and raised the dead, uh, the one who was tireless in sharing the love of God, and who gave his life to bring us freedom, and rose again the third day, and is coming back someday to to rule a new heaven and a new earth. And I love that story, and I bet you do too. And and the thing is, if it weren't for this book, I wouldn't know that story. This book is the whole reason I know it. So how can I say, well, I like that part of the book, but I don't like the part that that talks about God's standards for sexuality. That just doesn't jive with me how can I decide just arbitrarily on my own that I understand? Isn't that sort of a, a historical arrogance that says, I know truth, whereas people 2,000 years ago didn't? A- and some would come back and say, yeah, but it just doesn't make sense. A-, a lot of God's commands make sense. I can understand why we shouldn't steal, why we shouldn't kill, why we, shouldn't, uh, why we should always honor our parents. I mean, all of that makes sense, but what is the harm in two people who love each other, two consenting adults, forming a a lifelong monogamous relationship just because they're of the same gender. And I would say that we need to be humble enough to recognize that just like when we were kids and we didn't understand all of the rules our parents gave us, sometimes God may have uh, ideas or may know the truth that we can't completely comprehend. God designed us He knows. His his commands aren't intended to be hard for us. His his commands aren't intended to make life difficult. They're intended to spare us pain. And this is a a really ridiculous analogy, but I'm gonna use it anyway because it's the best one I've got in my feeble little brain. Um, But I like wearing cowboy boots. Mainly, not because I'm a cowboy, but because they make me about a half inch taller than I usually am. I also like running. Uh, about two or three times a week, my son and I go out and we'll run two or three miles. But I don't run in cowboy boots. You know why? Because cowboy boots weren't designed for that. Could I? Could I put on a pair of boots tomorrow and go out and, and run two miles? I could probably do it, but it wouldn't be good for me. I could get away with it for a while, but if I did it long enough, it would it would wreck my back. It would wreck my knees. It would wreck my feet. That's not what they're designed for. My point is, God knows what He designed us for. He knows that there are some things that we could choose to do that aren't His design, and we could get away with them for a while, and we could make them work for a while, but over time, they would destroy us. And that's the purpose of God's commands, to spare us that kind of pain. Myth number three. Myth number three says, we don't follow all the Bible's commands literally, so we can discount this one. We there, there are commands in the Scriptures we don't hold literally and follow completely today, so why are we still acting like God's standards for sexuality matter when clearly uh, we're on the wrong side of history? That's the common term. Now, the problem with that idea of being on the wrong side of history is the Bible clearly says Jesus is going to come back and rule this world someday. And so whatever side Jesus is on is by definition the right side of history but but the example they will give to to illustrate this is they'll they'll pick out some random command in the old testament in the law of moses in the first five books of the bible And, for instance, they'll say, yeah, yeah, in Leviticus it says that a man should not lie with another man, but it also says that if you have a son who's rebellious and disobedient, you should bring him before the elders of your city and they should stone him to death. So how come we follow one command in Leviticus but not another? And that's that seems like a slam dunk case, right? I did a a tough question back in December, December 4th if you want to look it up, uh, about why we don't follow all the rules of the Old Testament anymore. You might want to look that up if you want more details in this, but let me just give you the short version, and that is this. The Law of Moses in those first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses was given to the people of God, to Israel, the, the children of Israel. First of all, to institute a new nation, it was like the constitution of a new country. A country which, by the way, doesn't exist anymore. Political Israel today is not the same thing as Israel in the Old Testament, which had a, a covenant between them and God and, and was, was there for a purpose. Um, so the, the law of the Old Testament was there to institute a new nation, but it was also there to show the people, hey, God is holy, and you can't just approach Him the way you would approach a friend. You have to get yourself right. You have to be ritually pure. You have to make sure you are worthy to come into the presence of God before you can worship Him. So when we get to the New Testament, we find out that all of that is fulfilled in Jesus, Hebrews is one of the main places we see that, but we see it other places in the New Testament. So that's why we no longer have animal sacrifices in the temple. This is why we don't follow some of those Old Testament laws. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, I can come before Jesus. I can pray to God. I can stand before Him in worship, not on the basis of any righteousness of my own, but on the basis of Christ's own righteousness. Jesus has Already paid the price for me. He is my sacrifice. He is my high priest. And so, what this comes down to is when it, when we read the Old Testament and the laws in the Old Testament, we interpret them by what the New Testament says. So, to give you another example, Old Testament has this has this big, uh, very intricate system of dietary restrictions, which Orthodox Jews still follow to this day. We as Christians do not, because Jesus said that. From this point on, all foods are clean. That, that law, he said, was for a time and a place. It was to set Israel apart. But now, all that's gone. I have fulfilled it. You can move on. You can eat. That's why I can eat bacon. That's why I can eat catfish and, and shrimp and all those good things. So, in other words, there are some texts in the Old Testament, some laws that the New Testament specifically tells us were for a specific time and place and no longer hold us. And and by the way, what's the purpose of all the rules in the Old Testament, in the the whole Bible? Again, it's not for us to earn the favor of God. It's to spare us pain. It's to give us joy. It's to help us live happy and fulfilling lives. And when it comes to sexuality, none of God's commands are, are overturned by the New Testament. God hasn't changed. God hasn't said any of His laws on sexuality were situational or only for this particular time and place. Uh, the the teaching on sexuality is consistent from Leviticus all the way into the letters of Paul. It, it is consistent. Myth number four. Four, not five, four. Myth number four says, and this comes from within the church, and that is the myth that says, well, homosexuality is not just a sin, it's the ultimate sin. It's a special category of sin. And frankly, I don't really know any Christians who still believe this, but I, I grew up hearing it. Uh, I, I've heard it in the past. It used to be a very common belief among Christians. And I think that's because of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And just real quickly, in case you've forgotten or not read the story, God had decided to destroy these two cities for their wickedness. And before He did, He sent in two angels who looked like ordinary human beings. Two angels into the city of Sodom to rescue Lot was Abraham's nephew and his family before the destruction began. And the men of the city saw these two men enter Lot's house. And so they surrounded the house and demanded to be able to rape those two men. And shortly thereafter, after those two angels had pulled Lot and his family out, God rained down fire and brimstone and destroyed the city. And so people say, ah, God destroyed these two cities because they were full of homosexuality. And basically that's why today, the the word sodomy is a word. It comes from that story. Um, The problem is, that's not why the Bible says God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know that? Let me read you Ezekiel 16, verse 49. The only text in the whole Bible that says specifically why those two cities were destroyed is Ezekiel 16, verse 49. It says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom, She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So the the root sin for which God destroyed those two cities was not any sexual sin. It was their lack of compassion for the poor. Keep that in mind. This is, let's just be honest, there is a long history of religious people getting hung up on sexual issues. And treating sexual sins as if they're in some special category of sin. Think about in the time of Jesus when he's at the home of Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman comes in and anoints him with perfume. And, and Jesus looks at this, at Simon the Pharisee and says, look, this woman loves me more than he loves you, more than, more than you love me. This woman loves me more than anybody else because she's forgiven. See, the, the Pharisee looked at this woman and judged her and said, she's unworthy. In fact, he was ready to reject Jesus because he didn't reject her. Jesus said, I'm completely different than that. I don't look at this woman as some special category of sinner. I look at her as someone who's been forgiven. And you can be too if you change your heart. My, my point is, we as Christians need to watch out for that spirit of the Pharisee that keeps on popping up in us, that wants, to, that wants to grade people's sins and say, okay, I know I'm a sinner, but you're worse than I am because you've done this and I haven't. This idea that homosexuality is some special kind of sin is absolutely not biblical. Number five, and this is our final one. Myth number five is, well, we're in a battle for our culture and therefore they are the enemy. And and we have been in in what a lot of people call a culture war since at least the early 80s or the late 70s. And my own opinion is that has that has done more harm than good to the church. Dave Kinnaman of the Barna Group uh, recently did some research where he talked to young men and women who grew up in church but have left the church. They're still Christians, they still believe in Jesus, but they don't wanna have anything to do with church. And When he asked them, what are the reasons why you have become disillusioned with the institution of Christianity? One of their answers was, because Christians hate gay people. So remember during myth number one when I said it's our fault that gay people think that God hates them? Well, it literally is because that is the idea that our culture has gained, that, that our God hates them for their orientation, for their sexuality. We bear responsibility for that. And, and yeah, like I said, we've been in the midst of this self-described culture war for at least 40 years now. And as part of that culture war, issues around sexuality are one of the hot button topics. And they do matter. I don't mean to imply that we should just sit back and say nothing, that we shouldn't engage, that we shouldn't be involved. My point is, it matters not just that we believe we're telling the truth. It matters not just that we choose to speak out. It matters how we choose to speak out. So how does the Bible say we should respond to people who disagree with this. Well, 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing, writing to his uh, protege Timothy, a younger pastor. He says, "...the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth." So you see there what Paul's saying. It's not enough that we believe the truth. It's not enough that we're speaking the truth. You have to speak the truth in love. Paul is writing to a young man who's been known to be a little bit timid, and Paul's been encouraging him to be more bold. And here, when he's talking about, when you're when you're talking to someone who's arguing with you, his, he doesn't say, hey, get strong, get tough. Tell him what it's, tell him the truth hurt their feelings if you have to, but make sure you win the argument. No. When it comes to our relationship with people who disagree with us, winning the argument isn't the point. The point is to represent Christ well and help people reconcile with God. The point is not to change people's behavior for that matter. It's not our job to to go up to gay people and say, it's time for you to stop being gay. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus who then changes their behavior just like he's in the process of changing mine and yours. Proving them wrong isn't the point. Our job is to be ambassadors for Christ who reconcile people to God. So Paul tells Timothy, speak gently to those who disagree and their repentance should be your ultimate goal. So why do people think that Christians hate homosexuals? In my experience, most Christians are kind and loving people who don't hate anybody. Well, we gained this reputation because somewhere along the way, we stopped thinking about gay people as people. And we started thinking about them as opponents in a political argument. We started, we stopped thinking about how to love them enough that they would come to know the God who loved them enough to die for them and started thinking about how can I defeat them. And anytime you reduce somebody into a political opponent, an enemy, instead of someone for whom Christ died, you've already lost the battle. And the irony is, we have lost the battle, and we're losing the war. I mean, the, our, our culture does not agree with us on this issue. We've lost that battle, and we're losing the more important war, and that is the war for the souls of people that God loves. Let me just close by saying this. I, there's a, a cliche we often throw around as Christians, especially when it comes to this issue that says, love the sinner, hate the sin. I'm sure you've all heard that. And as much as there's truth in that, that should be our attitude about all things, I think it's time to to retire that cliche, because the truth is, we don't need to work harder at hating other people's sin. It would be handy if we hated our own sin, but we don't need to say, love the sinner, hate the sin. We need to work on loving sinners, period. Because there's not many gay people in this world who think, if I really want unconditional love, if I really want to be told that I matter, if I really want to get my life right, I'm going to go up to a Christian church because they'll accept me, because they'll love me, because they will help me. We need to work on loving sinners of all kinds. Because remember, God is the one who loved us enough that He became a human being and died on the cross for our sins. We need to love every kind of sinner because he first loved us. And that's what it comes down to. God bless y'all. Have a great week and stay safe.